and as we offer a word of prayer to the Lord this morning. God, we need you this morning, perhaps in ways that we don't even know yet that we need you. We ask that as your scriptures are read this morning, that you would give us a sense of peace. Peace knowing that while at times the words can feel sharp, that your word that was given to us so, so long ago still speaks a word of hope to us today. That even in the most broken of situations, in the places that feel most dark, the places that we want to give up, that you have not given up, that you, in fact, can put the pieces back together again. And we ask this all in your name. Amen. You may be seated this morning. Things once broken can't always be put back together. I remember early in uh, my marriage, and Michaela and I, as maybe some of you, when we were first married, I think people probably took pity on us as a young couple and so bought us things they knew we could never have afforded for ourselves to stock our kitchen and bathroom and different things. One of the things that was really, really great that we had that we used as often as we could. It was this stoneware baking dish, if any of you have these. They're just, there's something about them that I can't explain, why they're better than other baking sheets, and they were just, they were the best. We used them all the time. And I remember one time I pulled out a baking sheet and I scooped the food off and I put it on the stovetop thinking, okay, we'll get to it when the meal is done. We're about halfway through the meal and I hear this loud crack in the kitchen. Thinking something had broken, I run into the kitchen and see this baking dish that was just so important to us, just cracked on top of the stovetop because, and I'll let you guess whose fault it was. Well, it was mine. It was my fault. I'd left the burner on, put the sheet on top, and this clay baking sheet just cracked under the heat. And then a friend of ours later came to us and said, oh, well, I'd love to buy you something. I had to get you a wedding gift, but I want to get you something. What do you really need? And we said, well, it just so happens that one of us, who shall remain nameless, did break a baking sheet of ours, so it'd be great if you could buy us one. And she was so generous. She bought us this baking dish that we used. We moved here all the way to Calgary. We got here, and within four months, you would have think I learned my lesson, <laughs> put the baking sheet on top of the stove, the crack. <laughs> Once again, the baking sheet <laughs> broke, and we've since learned our lesson and said, we're not going to buy another one until we can learn, learn to know better. There's things that are broken, sometimes feel like they're not worth putting back together again. For some of us, we have stories where we remember the pain of the moment where the thing first snapped. Remember the pain that it was when it felt like the world was falling apart around us. It's in those moments where we learn all the wrong things to say. I remember when my grandmother first passed away, the first time I had experienced death in my adult life, and I was in the hospital and began to be berated by all the wrong things. Why well, aren't you so grateful she's not in pain anymore? Well, there's just another angel in heaven. Well, it was probably God's time. 
things that in the moment may have felt sincere from those who were sharing them, but didn't speak to the reality that I was feeling. Only sought to diminish, explain away, or somehow make me feel better. The scripture that we have for us today is no different, for it speaks to the sharp and tense realities that for many of us are very real, our lived pain, moments that aren't just adjacent to maybe our own experience, maybe not even something that happened a long time ago, but something that we still live in. And so we have a bit of work before we read the scripture today. Because the text, as all texts, can sometimes feel distant, can sometimes feel maybe naive, overly judgmental, or condemning of situations, offering no hope to us, this text is no different. For throughout history, for decades, texts like this have been used and misused to misunderstand and misappropriate the message that Jesus gives to us in the most dark of places. And so we've spent the past seven weeks throughout this season of Epiphany asking this central question, who is Jesus and how is he revealed to the world? We've tried to be honest about how our own perceptions of who Jesus is, what we would prefer Jesus would say to us, can often at times shape more who we think Jesus is than the actual Jesus we see revealed in Scripture. And today's text is particularly challenging, for Jesus spends 20 verses in these first three chapters, known as the Sermon on the Mount, telling his disciples that the sort of kingdom that is being inaugurated is a place that would invite all, even the most hurting and broken among us. As he references the poor, the meek, the hurting, the vulnerable. He then would go on to tell his disciples of their place in that world. As they would find themselves in the presence of those who needed hope, they were to be salt and light. They were to seek out to flavor the world where there was no flavor, to shine light where it perhaps felt most dark. And then for the rest of this sermon, Jesus addresses particular behaviors, things he invites us to avoid and things to pursue. The things that he invites us to avoid, the behaviors that seem to be condemned, are juxtaposed against what his expectation of the kingdom really is. In other words, to say this, that the kinds of things that Jesus speaks against stand in stark contrast to the kind of world that he is seeking to inaugurate among us. And while they speak of something different, and while they speak of a world that is whole, a world that is healed, a world that has life. We must not so easily read it to assume that Jesus ignores the harsh realities of our world. Particularity matters when reading Scripture. It matters. There's whole disciplines devoted to the reading of Scripture and understanding the particular nuances, the words, what is both said and not said. However, Generations have gotten lost in the particulars of texts such as these that, let us from, that keep us from seeing the larger message of Jesus. So what I'm not saying to us today is that it isn't worth unpacking in greater detail, but simply to say for our purposes today, we seek to identify the core of Christ's message to the world. 
For to be caught up in the particulars of this text puts us in one of two camps. We either feel immense condemnation from Jesus if we have participated in or been affected by these realities. However close we feel in our relationship with God, these texts, if we're not careful, can make us feel far away, can make it feel like God has forgotten about us. Or if we feel distance from these things, haven't been our experience, and we absolve ourselves from the authority of the text that it has on our lives. To be honest, we'd rather avoid these texts. For we know Jesus to be loving and comforting to us in even our darkest of moments. But we can assume that that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't call us to a different way of life. For this seemingly naive perception of grace can often come manifest as this, that Jesus calls us to the places where we want to go and doesn't call us where we don't. We take stories of Jesus' healing and we put ourselves in the position of the one who is oppressed to be healed and we move on. But for the gospel to be the good news that it is, for it to be the message of hope that is offered to us, it is also a message of transformation. A news that looks at the sharp realities of our world, our communities, our individual hearts, and seeks to reform them in the ways that they need to be reformed. It seeks to reveal the things that we would rather forget. And it seeks to put the pieces back together in the places that feel most broken. I recognize that this text is quite real for many of us. Jesus describes situations that are lived pain. So today does not seek to ignore that pain but rather portray God's intention for healing and restoration. So all that to be said, I invite you to stand in body and spirit as we read the scripture together today. Would you pray this prayer for me as we ask for God's wisdom, his eyes and his ears to hear that which we cannot hear on our own? Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of the Holy Spirit that as your scriptures are read and your word proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Reading from Matthew verse, chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. You have heard that it was said that in those ancient times you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you shall be liable to judgment. If you insult a brother or sister you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering a gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister. Then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser, while you are on your way to court with them. Or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart.
If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who has divorces his wife, except on the grounds of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. Again, you have heard it said in those ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Jesus spends the rest of this portion known as the Sermon on the Mount highlighting specific behaviors that either are to be pursued or avoided. Remember that he's describing the kingdom that is being inaugurated through the salt and light behavior of his disciples. And therefore, this next portion of text, while sharp, should give us a sense of peace, knowing that God is, what God is bringing into the world does not ignore the painful, lived realities of our world. Rather, it embraces them, longs for redemption, healing, and restoration in even the darkest of places. So to properly look at this text, we'll unpack two things that are presented to us. First, there's anger. Jesus speaks of anger, something that many of us have experienced in our lives, but goes beyond the anger that we might feel if our favorite team loses or we forget to purchase something at the store that we needed that night for dinner. No, he speaks of an anger that festers. An anger that when left unattended grows into a contempt for those around us. Jesus often uses big analogies intended to get our attention, and this passage is no different. He makes the link between anger unattended and murder, something that surely would have reminded the disciples of stories throughout their scriptures. One of the earliest stories of murder when Cain killed his brother. What is clear here is that he's not just reiterating the sixth commandment given to Israel, thou shalt not murder. He's describing a severing of relationship between siblings that would result in a contempt with one another to the point of death. Maybe some of us have experienced this or know this kind of anger that has manifested in the people that we love most an anger that can blind us from the needs of those around, an anger that can cripple life, flourishing, and hope. Jesus speaks of a place, the word that is used when he's describing the hell that people would be sent to is Gehenna, 
a place that was on the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem, a trash heap, a place where those who were deemed unfit for society were sent. This is the place where Jesus often meets people. An analogy that would have been clear to the disciples to describe simply this, that the Jewish culture was set up to believe that those who who participated in prohibited behaviors were sent to the outskirts of the city. So too were there behaviors that had no place in the kingdom that God was inaugurating. Yet the key difference in the example that Jesus uses is that it is not simply the people that are sent there never to be redeemed. But it is to believe that the behaviors that are no longer allowed in the kingdom, that the people that find themselves tethered to those behaviors, the people that find themselves most lost in places like Gehenna, that Jesus could still meet them there. That Jesus could still find those people who had been most ostracized from the community, whether through their own actions or the actions of others. Our society, while different, functions similarly, that there are behaviors that often make us feel on the outside. Whether through our own behavior or the behavior of others, a psychologist that I read once referred to this as the disgust factor. This recognition that when we're eating a plate of food and a fly lands on it, there's this temptation to feel like the entire thing has now been contaminated. So too is the way that we view people. When people get caught up in these sort of behaviors, whether through the actions of their doing or the actions of others, so too, like Jewish society, we can kick them to the outskirts. And so Jesus' reference of Gehenna is a message of hope that says, while others might feel like they are pushed to the outskirts, the kingdom that I am bringing in does not leave people there, but brings them back home. The example that he uses to describe this sort of reconciliation, the severing of relationship that would be experienced through siblings, is rather ridiculous in that he tells of a worshiper that leaves their sacrifice on the altar in order to first reconcile with a sibling. If we put this into context, most of the hearers of Jesus lived in Galilee, a three days journey from Jerusalem, the place where the altar was that sacrifices were made upon. And so if this story is to be taken to its extreme, it would present a reality in which a worshiper, upon sacrificing for their own sins, remembered a remembered a relationship that was broken and would travel three days back to Galilee to reconcile, three days back to Jerusalem to finish their sacrifice. Would leave this live animal unattended for a week on the altar, all because it mattered more that they sought reconciliation with those around them than the worship of their God on that altar. One translation describes it like this. If you've ever been in a place of worship much like the one we are in today, about to make an offering and suddenly remember a grudge a friend has against you. Abandon your offering. Leave the place of worship immediately. Go to this friend and make things right. Then and only then, come back and work things out with God. There are some who would wish to bifurcate our worship of God and our relationship with others. I sat through many a worship gathering growing up in my life where the sentiment was that we should be come into this place and forget about the things that burdened us beyond the walls. 
And while there is an element that we come into this space and we focus on one thing and choose to forget about others, we cannot, we cannot disassociate that which God wants to do with us from what God wants to do in us with others. Jesus reminds us here that our relationship with God cannot be disconnected from the relationship with those around us. To those who say, I just need Jesus and nothing else, this text would suggest the opposite. That I point back to the words of Jesus, words that encourage us to prioritize amending of relationship above all else, even the worship of him. In fact, I would go as far to suggest this, that the mending of broken relationship is indeed some of the most honest worship we could ever do. That we come into spaces like this and we worship through song, through giving, through prayer, through the reading of God's word, yet there have been times in my life where I have sought reconciliation in the relationships that were most broken, and God met me there. There was a worship unlike anything else, one that challenged me, one that was hard, one that I didn't always know would work out, but God met me there. The second thing that God addresses, that Jesus addresses, a particularly sensitive point in Scripture, must not be read so quickly to diminish the very real pain for many of us that is still so heavy. Before we explain what Jesus is saying, let it be heard that this text has been used to cause irreparable damage and pain for those that already feel the sting of things like divorce and adultery. This text has been used to cause damage in the lives of maybe some of you, and I would say in my own life. When I was 10 years old, my parents told me that they were getting a divorce, and this text, this text caused more pain than good. As people used it seeking to explain away the pain, give justification for the behavior that was laid in front of me. But let me say this to us today. Oftentimes we read scripture just through our own lens and our own experience. But we're reminded of the importance of reading scripture not simply through our own eyes, but through the eyes of others around us. I've heard many preach from this passage who have no concept of the pain of divorce and adultery. No concept of what that does to a person, to a family to a community. And so when we read texts like this, it matters immensely that we read it not just through our own eyes, but through the eyes of those around us. In my own preparation for the, re for the preaching of this text this week, I received a call from a friend of mine telling me that his marriage was falling apart. That after 20 years, his wife came to him and asked for a divorce. So I read the scripture through Chris's eyes this morning. Remembering that these situations are not far away. Even for those who have not experienced it personally, that these experiences are very real 
in our world. Also, decades have been spent arguing about the particularity of these five verses. And like I said, particularity matters, but what is far more important in the backdrop is that Jesus is calling his followers to be salt and light in the world that needs it. The misuse of this passage reminds me of the moments in my own life where you hear all those wrong things from people trying to explain away the pain. But if you've ever experienced this, you know the meaning and purpose are the last things that you want to hear. This again reminds me to be attentive to the pain both in my life and the lives of those around me and to do everything that I can to be the salt and the light in the places that need it. These verses finally would have reminded the disciples of the oath that God made with them, of the oath that began with a covenant with Abraham that would extend to the nation of Israel and there on to the disciples, the oath that God made from the very beginning with this nation that would be unfaithful to God. And while Israel broke their oath time and time again, God never abandoned them. For those whom this is a lived reality, hear this. No matter how much unfaithfulness, brokenness, or pain has defined your past, present, and perhaps you fear your future, God has bound God's self to you, to your hurt, to your darkness, to your unknowing, and in fact, wants to put the pieces back together again. This text speaks to a larger theme found in Scripture of a severed family. If you read the beginning of Scripture, it begins to tell about a lot of different families, ones that made good decisions and ones that made not-so-good decisions. The severing of family runs deep in the fabric of the story of Scripture, and I would suggest to us that Jesus is referencing these stories Stories that remind us of these three things that I think it's important for us to hear today. Severed relationships are not what God intended. A truth that transcends Scripture. That however severed relationships might come about, that that has never been what God intended for the world. Second, it tells us this. The severed relationships do not just affect those involved, but they impact communities, whole families, neighborhoods. For some of us, we feel that pain. For others of us, we carry it for those that we love. And finally, what we need to hear this morning is that severed relationships, as Scripture would tell us, are not the end of the story. They may be the beginning. They may define our past. They may define our present. But they don't have to define our futures. As I was reading, I was flooded with memories 
myself as a 10-year-old boy wrestling with the uncertainty of what life looked like. And then I turned 11 and I thought I would figure it out, but more uncertainty. And 12 and 13 and 14 and the years passed on and I kept waiting. God, have you forgotten about me? When are you going to put the pieces back together again? And I stand here today as I was reflecting last night, remembering the hurt, feeling the sting again. And I felt God wrap me up in his arms, say, I'm not done with you yet. That I know it still hurts. Some 20 years later, I know it still hurts. But look where I've brought you. And trust that I will continue to carry you all the days of your life. That the intention of these words is not for us to leave feeling condemnation for the decisions either we have made or the decisions that have been made for us. But rather to remind us simply that God's intention for the world was and always is wholeness. That God has always intended the world to be whole. Nothing more is true. And that in fact, in its brokenness, God has bound God's self to the world. All that God created, choosing to carry both the good and the bad, both the light and the dark. For God was one who came into this world, took on flesh and dwelt among us, taking on our pain and suffering. That this was the God who came into the world, who died on the cross and rose again, telling us that the pain we feel from the severed family is not the end of the story. That the pain we feel from the severed family is not the end of the story because Jesus, while hanging on the cross, is not left there. That three days later, Christ would rise again. A reminder that can at times feel naive if we let it, can feel ignorant to the pain. So what does Jesus say to that? He says through the words of Paul as he spoke to the early church that the church in moments of uncertainty, as they clung to the future hope of resurrection yet still wrestled with the pain of the present, he said, be a people that rejoice with one another, but also a people that weep with one another. Whether this is your pain or the pain of those whom you love, Weep with each other. What I needed in those moments was not somebody to come to me and explain away my pain or my suffering or justify somehow the decisions that had been made for me. What I needed was somebody to hold me. Cry with me. Be with me. And so too, in the calling to the church, to you and I, to be salt and light, is to know this, that Jesus does not speak to these realities to explain them away, to make us feel bad for the decisions we have made, but speaks to them on the back of his calling to his disciples, to his community of faith, to say, we recognize that these things exist in and among us. 
so too does the calling of salt and light live in and among us. How much more do we have to do in the world? How much more of the world needs a little flavor, needs a little salt? How much more of the world needs a little light? To live in faith that God can heal you. To live in this sort of faith, just as brokenness affects communities. Let me tell you this. So too does reconciliation. But when God starts to put the pieces back together again, whether in a day, a month, a year, or decades, that the pain and reverberation that we feel, not just in our own lives, but in our communities, when moments like this break, so too, when God begins to put the pieces back together again, it does more than just impact us. It impacts our families. Impacts our neighborhoods. It impacts our world. And so the calling that I felt when I was a scared little boy, one that I still am at times today, wondering if God could ever put the pieces back together again. I hear that still small voice saying, trust that the work that I am doing in your life is not just for you, but for your spouse, for your future children, for their families, for your community, for your neighbors, for the people that need to see that death is not the end of the story. We struggle with this as we long for immediacy. Come, Lord Jesus. There's days that I look at the pain as I was talking to my friend on the phone on Friday and just wanted, I wanted it to be better. And I felt God saying, just be. Be patient. This painful and pressing issue for many of us takes time. So how do we cling to this long view of hope amidst the immediate pain of circumstance? We cling to one another. We rejoice in moments of rejoicing and we weep in moments of sadness. I'm going to invite the band to come forward as we close. As this passage follows the call to be salt and light, it reminds us that our behavior matters. The way that we interact with each other in these deep and dark moments matters, for it portrays the kind of kingdom that we serve. And to serve God's kingdom means that we live as people that seek wholeness in our relationships with one another. That while being honest about the brokenness that so plagues many of our families, friends, and loved ones, it calls us to believe that God can put the pieces back together again. I don't know what you're carrying this morning. 
I know some of the things that we carry as a community together in the short time I've been here. I know that this pain is real. Maybe for some of us, we've begun to feel freedom, reconciliation, or wholeness. But for many others, still stings. It doesn't ever have to not sting. But what does occur is that as God sits with us and holds us, comforts us, we begin to see a larger vision that amidst the sharp realities that this world can so quickly bring, we serve a Christ that wraps us up in his arms. And we follow as people that seek to do the very same. As we close with this song, I invite you to pray. Perhaps there are moments that come to mind, burdens that feel heavy today, whether for yourself or for those around you. We have altars here this morning that are on the sides that we invite you to use, or you can pray at your seat. But I invite you to lean into those moments this morning. Scripture invites us to a practice known as lament. One that an author that I read once described as the denial of denial. Often we deny the reality of our pain. We want to deny that it's actually heavy. That it actually hurts. Because we think it makes us stronger. It makes us more resilient. Makes us more capable. But lament denies all of that. This is okay to be honest. It's okay to be honest about the things that burden you. For in this process of lament, of honesty, we find God there with a still small voice saying, I'm here. Some days it's hard to hear, harder to hear than others. But church, if I could say anything to you today, I would say this, that in the moments when you sense that those around you need to hear that voice, be that voice for them. Be the voice that people need to hear in the darkest of times. Let us pray as we sing this last song together. Would you bow your heads? Heavenly Father, we came to your text today humbly, knowing that it would stir up memories, that it would remind us of things we'd rather forget. But we trust that the one who brought these things to light will not leave them there, but will in fact put the pieces back together again and make us whole. So however long that takes, Lord, we keep our eyes fixed on you. We keep our eyes fixed on one another in moments where we know we need it. And for this life that you call us to that is just too hard for us to do on our own, we trust that you will give us strength. 
you will give us wisdom. And you will give us courage to be the people that you have always called us to be. We ask this in your name. Amen.